0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Tonight, I want to talk about a few different styles of, or groups, classifications of meditation practice. Um, I want to start with what I'm calling wisdom practices, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment. And then I'll talk about some other practices which are about cultivating certain beautiful states of the mind and the heart. So we mostly, this is, this center is called the Insight Meditation Center. The word in Pali for insight is Vipassana with the V Vipassana, translated as insight. And this is, when I talk about wisdom practices, this is what I'm referring to. And there are many, many qualities that we're cultivating when we practice insight meditation. Two main qualities, that and this isn't all, but two main ones that we tend to focus on and that I want to talk about tonight are mindfulness and concentration. Last week we actually spent most of the evening talking in more detail about the mindfulness, so I'm going to focus, emphasize more the concentration side in a few moments. I'll explain what I mean by the term. But first I want to invite you just to reflect back on how your meditation period was, this half hour that we did just just a few minutes ago and of course there's many people here so everyone's practice is going to be different some of you may be newer to practice some of you may be old timers some of you may have spent a lot of time training the mind for others the mind may be less trained so you just have to see how it is for you but definitely for i'm sure for many people here and for all of us at some time in our practice we will find that we we come in and we sit down to meditate and many different styles of practice. Say say, we want to just be mindful of our breathing, for example. A very common way that we teach uh, insight meditation practice. And you'll notice that you you're there with one breath, two breaths, three breaths, and then five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes later you wake up and realize, where was I? You were just caught up in thinking or you're just gone and you're just off into some mental world and you remember, oh, I'm supposed to be back with my breath. And then you may either beat yourself up and create suffering and a whole problem about it and then come back to your breath or hopefully you just come back to your breath (laughs) knowing that it's not surprising, it should not be surprising that it's not so easy just to do something simple. Like just stay with your breath. You know, you can come in. You you can sit however you want. You can lie down if you need to. No one's doing it tonight, but sometimes you'll see people. They have a bad back. They need to lie. Oh, I do see someone lying down. Yeah. So okay, I'm surprised. You almost every time you meditate anywhere, there's a few people who you know they need to take care of their backs. So you can lie down. You can sit in a chair. You can sit on a cushion, a bench. We want you to be comfortable. I said at the beginning of the sitting that we're not try- you don't need to try and make anything happen. Just be aware, mindfully, of whatever is happening. It's Just be present with yourself. It's really, conceptually, very, very simple. And yet we see how difficult that simple instruction can be. And we start to realize how out of control our minds are. Which is a tremendous insight. It's actually an important insight people often don't notice that because they don't take the time to stop and pay attention. We're just busy in our lives. And when we, when we quiet down the external movement, we let the, the body be, you know, still. We try to have a relatively uh, supportive or conducive quiet environment. Then it can magnify... What is already true of how out of control the mind is. With time, that we we're, the the skill or the ability to really be present and 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 have the mind not wander away so much deepens. That's the concentration part. Mindfulness really just means the word. It has the meaning of remembering. It's just knowing what's happening in the present moment. Right? If you're sitting in meditation, sometimes we can end up in a struggle. There's some difficulty. We're having the experience, but we're lost in it and caught in it. We, we, We talk about waking up out of that, being caught in it, And that wakefulness or knowing what's happening in the moment is what we mean by mindfulness. We're aware, oh, I'm having trouble, there's a struggle, rather than just being lost in it. That's being mindful. It doesn't matter whether you have the ability to be present for a long period of time or your mind's wandering all over the place. We can all be mindful in a given moment. It's simple. Along with that, the ability of the mind to be less distracted is important. And so the word, you don't have to know these Pali words, but if you're interested, the word that we translate as concentration is samadhi. And you'll hear this word, samadhi. It's S-A-M-A-D-H-I. If you don't worry if you don't remember that, um, you'll hear it many, many times. But in English, it's... we we all translate it as concentration it's not actually the best word but we're kind of stuck with it because everyone uses it so I'll continue using it but I want to just be clear on what I mean when I use the word because concentration can have the connotation of concentrating on something the word Samadhi actually means undistractedness so you could be undistracted if you're focused or concentrating on a task on your breath on something that's a way you can be you're concentrated or you're undistracted but there are other forms that undistractedness can take rather than narrowly focusing on something there can be a real broad open spacious awareness and and if this doesn't make sense to you don't worry about it but for some of you you'll get the sense of it where the mind is present, steady it's undistracted clear, but it may not be on any object. It may just be an open, receptive, s- spacious kind of awareness. Right? I think Andrea Fella, if you hear her, she'll tend to talk more in terms of this open, inclusive awareness. It's broader. It's a different kind of, of undistractedness. But it, 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 so it can take many, many forms that we're not going to get into much tonight. It's, it's a specialized topic about samadhi. It's actually a very important topic. But it's basically this idea of undistractedness. Right samadhi, right concentration is the last, the eighth element of the Eightfold Path. For those of you who have been through the series last week, we, we were on the seventh factor, right mindfulness. It ends, it culminates in right samadhi. You cannot have, actually, you cannot practice mindfulness or concentration completely. In isolation without the other. If you're just being mindful in any way in a given moment, if you're practicing, there's the state of being mindful. And there's also the practice of mindfulness. We're actually applying the mind to be aware in the moment. If you check into what's going on in your body, you're being mindful of the experiences in your body. If you're paying attention to your breath, you're being mindful of your breath if you know what's going on in your mind, you're being mindful of states of the mind, right? That's what we mean. By doing that, we're actually are... It may not feel very concentrated to you, but you are, in fact, applying the mind, and you you're actually are strengthening concentration just by being mindful moment to moment, the best you can. Keep bringing the mind back. It does train the mind. And in fact, there are many teachers, insight meditation teachers, who consciously even de-emphasize the concentration. You don't hear them talk about it much at all. And, and they'll, if you ask them, they'll say all you have to worry about is mindfulness. By, being mind, by practicing mindfulness, you'll get all the concentration you need. That's all you have to know. And that's a very common approach that you'll hear many, many times if you stick around, come to centers like this, places like Spirit Rock and that whole thing. You'll hear that a lot. There are Lots of other teachers who will say will say no, actually it 's important to emphasize the concentration piece because it 's so supportive for the for the mindfulness, and so we want to actually do practices, and there 's a whole range of specific practices we won 't get into those tonight the, of uh, intended just to sharpen the concentration aspect of the mind up. And then there are people like me who are kind of in the middle. I actually think that uh, concentration is a big deal and many people who know me, associate me, with, they think, oh, I'm a concentration teacher actually. I wrote a book on samadhi and they think, oh, he's a concentration guy. But it's actually not True. I'm an insight meditation practitioner and teacher. But I practice and teach in a style that, br- that thinks they're both important and brings them together and, and synthesizes them together. And, and sometimes we may lean toward in a way where, where it feels like in the moment we're emphasizing the concentration aspect or it may feel like another moment or another meditation period where we're practicing in a way that is emphasizing the mindfulness and there's a time where they can also, we can practice in ways where they're balanced together. And if we were spending more time tonight really talking about how to practice like that, we could get into the details of, the, of that. Or you can come sit a retreat with me sometime and, and get it. So there's a range of how it's taught. And that's part of, we, we, we get exposed to that just by hanging around with different teachers. And over time, you'll find the way that's the best fit for you. The good news is it 's not a right or wrong or that one style of practice is better than another style. there are no, so even though there 's a range of views on how much to emphasize the concentration in relation from a practice point of view in relation to the mindfulness, no teachers say, "Be distracted <laughs> so why not? strengthen the undistractedness take it as far as we can so I'm very big on taking the the concentration as far as we can, ultimately you can get into these meditative states and I just want you to have heard the word uh, called jhana j-h-a-n-a actually technically right concentration in the eightfold path is defined as what's called these four jhanas, they're specialized meditation states now that you 've heard it, forget about it, but you know you 'll have heard it <laughs> that's You could think of them as if you strengthen the concentration really to take it to its culmination, you can get into these again they 're specialized meditation states. It may not be of interest for many people it's not i 'm not saying it 's necessary but let 's take undistractedness as far as we can let 's strengthen mindfulness as far as we can so from from that perspective. Insight meditation, if you talk about it in this way, we're talking about getting something, gaining something, cultivating certain qualities, going from, okay, I have a certain level of concentration, I want to get more. So there's this getting aspect to it, right? That can serve us well. This is a path. We are strengthening qualities. It's leading somewhere. But it can get us into trouble if we fall into, oh, now I've got to get... Anytime your mind says, I got to get, that's a a clue. It's a setup for trouble. And we'll all fall into that sometimes. So, okay, it's going to happen. And, okay, we'll suffer. Then we'll learn. So, a way I suggest we practice is... The starting point is the attitude of not trying to get anything. It's, 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 it's kind of the irony, or it can seem paradoxical in a sense, that we're doing two things at the same time, we're gaining, and we also want to just be right where we're at and not get anywhere. How can those two fit together in meditation practice? Well, it's actually not that complicated. Maybe not so easy to do, to, to put into practice or to actualize it, but that's the training so you don't have to be any good at it to start off. That's good news, right? If you're a beginner, you can just have a beginner's level of skill. It's fine. The best we can, I encourage people to start with the attitude of just bringing ease and relaxation to your meditation. And we said this at the beginning, of, for those of you who are at the beginning of the of the sitting period, I suggested that you take a few moments just mindfully connect in with whatever's going on in your body, notice what states of your mind and heart, your whole experience, and to notice how you're relating to your experience. Can we have a sense of letting be or allowing? You know, if something's difficult, we don't want to fall into pushing this away or I got to get this. We want to just connect mindfully with whatever's happening in the present moment. That's the sensibility or the attitude to bring to the practice. From that place then it's perfectly fine to work even sometimes quite hard to move us in a wholesome direction. Cultivate these important supportive qualities. All with the attitude of you just get what you get in the moment and we just stay with that. We don't, we don't want to get into grasping. or get, So we don't want to take ourselves out of the present moment. We want to just have our experience but practice in a way, aim ourselves in a wholesome direction that cultivates these. So we can have both at the same time. And really, I think that's the real sweet spot. Some teachers will emphasize the non-gaining. And that's the whole, whole path of practice and that's fine. And other teachers really are, it's almost cracking the whip and you're, there's this gaining and you've got to get and that can serve us well too. And then, you may want to try on, I'm just encouraging you to find which style fits you the best. What I'm suggesting is way where they come together and inform each other. You can have both. And you can take your meditation all the way, you can get these specialized states called jhana, which I realize I haven't described, so they're kind of, for some of you, they're... um, I can point you, you come up to me afterwards if you want, to where you can find out more about it or do certain retreats if if you're curious, what's he talking about? Because it sounds kind of tantalizing, Right? Oh, that's these the deepest states of concentration. So you may, but it's just beyond the scope of our intro. You can have all that, and you can approach your practice with a peaceful mind and a peaceful heart. And it turns out, the more we can bring a sense of not wanting to get and gaining, and just be with what we've got, that actually adds a. Um, a whole dimension of relaxation and ease into our practice. We don't get into a struggle. We don't get into a fight. And out of that deep sense of ease and relaxation, the the deeper states of concentration arise because they're actually deep states of letting go. So we have to put effort in. And sometimes people will come, I've seen people on retreats, for example, or in daily life practice, and they're, it's, it's a beautiful thing in that they have a, a sincere intention, I'm going to work hard, I really want to get, but it's this, can be this John Wayne approach that, that yes, it brings an effort that's important, but it gets out of balance, and people get tense and tight, and they're wondering why they can't concentrate, and if they just let Go. And, and an image that there's a, a teacher named Ajahn Brahmavamso, commonly referred to as Ajahn Brahm, and he, and he uses an example, he lifts up a glass of water, and he says, see this glass of water here? Um, and he says, notice, no matter how hard I try to hold it, so I'm holding one right here, right? I'm trying to hold it still. It's a wonderful image, he says, no matter how hard I try to hold it, you see, I can't make it perfectly still. I don't know if you're far away. It's still, the water's still moving. I can't hold it perfectly still. And I'm trying harder and harder. I'm really trying. It's really true. I can't hold it perfectly still. If I just set it down, it's a letting go. It just comes to stillness. So putting this into practice, it's actually a combination of both. We do need to make effort. But there also has to be this sense of this Ease or letting go, they, co- they go together. <clears throat> there's a lot more we could say about concentration. Again, it's, 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 a, it's a big... T- all of the topics we've touched on in this five weeks have been big topics, so there's another one. Um, the last piece I want to say is, is that these I- wisdom practices for insight meditation are not ultimately about gaining anything or or making any getting cultivating any particular states of the mind or heart. It's more about perceiving directly and deeply just what's actually real and true in any given moment. In service of that, we do cultivate these qualities to help sharpen up the mind. And the image I often use of the concentration part, the undistractedness with the mindfulness, you can think of it as turning the mind into an electron microscope. And it also works equally well to think of it as a Hubble telescope, which are kind of the opposites, but there's the, both this power, and both images work great, and well, there'll be times where it feels like one way or the other, but that's the power we take to open up in this broad, inclusive way or to zoom in sometimes, Right? So, we are strengthening that, but that's only because we want to have a really powerful electron microscope or a really powerful Hubble telescope to really see deeply and clearly what just is. So, these states we cultivate are in service of clear seeing. That's all. So, their practices. It's both not gaining any... This is where those two come together again. Not about gaining anything, but we do need to cultivate and gain in order to do that more clearly. That's the wisdom practices. There's another group of... or classification of practices I want to spend a little bit of time on that are important and you'll hear a lot also. And you can't really completely disassociate them from the insight practice. But we, we... We tend to. These are very much about the goal of these practices is to cultivate certain states of the mind and heart. And these are called, and you'll hear, I'm going to give you the Pali because you hear it so much, so it's important, called the Brahma Viharas. Brahma Viharas. And there's four groups of practices. And the Brahma Viharas just means divine abodes. Or you can think out of the dwelling places of the divine beings, if you will. And you don't have to believe that there's divine beings out there. That's fine. The idea is we're cultivating such beautiful, if you think of exalted states of the heart and mind, that it's like we've we've become divine in a way. That's kind of the way to think about it. So I'm going to name what the four are, and I'll briefly touch on them. Again, if you don't, you don't have to remember them all, this is something you'll hear many times. And I'll give you the English, and some of you may want to know the Pali, I'll just say it. But again, just don't worry about it, if you, you don't have to memorize this. The first of these four is what, you, you, if you come here, you've probably heard taught many times, is loving-kindness. In Pali, it's metta. Actually, the the real—if if you're interested—the real pronunciation is meta, meta. But nobody in the West says meta; we all say meta. It's a gross mispronunciation, but we're, you sound—you just sound too silly if you say meta. So you, unless you're so anyway, meta. <laughs> and it, we translate it as loving kindness. It's a kind, loving, caring ha- heart, and so. Um, you know there's practices so for example many of you have heard you'll come here and at the end of a sit you'll do something of there's many ways it's taught you might bring to mind yourself or other beings and you might send even use some phrases may you all be happy may you all be peaceful you know there's ways to practice and it's not just about the phrases it's in service of strengthening the felt experience that's where we're aiming towards Of love. That's the first of the four. The next one, so we have loving kindness, the second is compassion. Karuna in um, Pali. And the way I think of compassion is So the first metta is love. When love meets suffering, that's the way I I would call compassion. Many ways you might think of it. We all know what it's like to suffer. We're all fellow sufferers, every one of us in this room. All human beings suffer. Hopefully we can have some happiness too, and it's not the whole picture, but we certainly all have our share of suffering. And so when we start to connect with that, um, there's this opening of the heart. It it really brings in a place of empathy, an ability to be present in the face of suffering without shutting off. So, And there's a tricky place here with, um, actually I should go back, with the loving kindness metta, in the, in the Pali commentaries, they talk about what are called the near and the far enemies. The far enemy is the opposite and the near enemy is something that can mask it, as it. So the far enemy of, of metta, of loving kindness, is, is hatred or ill will, right? Non-love, if you will. The near enemy would be attached love. Right? Conditional love, you know the metta we're talking about is really meant to be a, and more of an unconditional love. Not dependent on any, you know, getting what we want or how the person acts or anything like that. Compassion, it can mask uh, as pity. But pity has a little, I think there's a tinge of aversion in there a little bit. It's different, and it really—it's like separating ourselves out and pitying the others with compassion. There's really a sense of standing in that person's shoes. I know what it's like to suffer. I suffer. So I may not know your exact experience that you went through this terrible thing that happened or whatever, but I know what it is to feel loss, to feel despair to feel lonely, to be afraid. To, you know, all, every one of us know every one of these, right? Every human being knows every one of these. And when we open that, it softens and opens, breaks open our own heart. And that's the compassion for the other. So what would be, you know, that maybe the far enemy of compassion, we might say, would be an indifference. So there's the balance there of being present and not being swept away and lost in it, overcome by just the enormity of the suffering. So we have to, and we want to be respectful with these because for every one of us, there are going to be situations for where this particular situation is too much for me. I can't be present, in, it's too much. So we want to acknowledge that we, we're human beings, we have limitations sometimes too. And so part of it is growing, expanding, you know, how much we can hold and contain. Right? Okay, so that's the compassion. So first was the metta, loving kindness. Second, the karuna, compassion. The third in Pali is called mudita. It's called appreciative or sympathetic joy. Appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, and that's actually taking a happiness at the happiness of another. So where I I defined compassion as love meets suffering, this is just my own. I don't know if other people would say it this way. I'm defining this appreciative joy as love meets happiness. You know, so we want to be. You know, if, if what what would be the opposite of that? It'd be jealousy. And maybe uh, a near enemy might be maybe a giddiness about uh, where there's, there's not a balance there. So, But it's just a place that's still balanced, clear, and awake. We have our mindfulness, our undistractedness. We're present with it. And the heart really opens at the happiness of another. Now, I should say with these, but it's not just the happiness of with metta, when we send a wish to someone, may you be happy. It's not just happiness. Happiness and well. There are, you know, if, if an alcoholic gets a drink, their happiness, but it's actually not for their welfare. You know, people say, well, what about Hitler? You hear that all the time. What about Hitler? He was happy. You know, it's like, yeah, but, but he was causing suffering. That's not what we're wishing for. Wishing that people will find happiness and well-being or welfare. They have to go together. It's not what may, we may mistake for what brings happiness in the moment. But it's actually leading to suffering for ourselves or others. That's a delusion. And then that's why we need the wisdom and the discernment part of the practices to be in here with it, right? Okay, we have metta, loving kindness, uh, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic or appreciative joy, right? We actually take, we feel happy. We're not jealous, it's not taking anything away from me, even. And because what can happen, you know, like the, the stereotype is, you know, your, your, your friends are all getting married, whatever, you know, you're single and it makes you feel worse, right? If that happens, I'm just, I don't know why that popped in my head, but I just, I, it just was an example. I'm not trying to get anyone triggered off here or anything. Uh, but, you know, we all I can make examples. Sometimes I don't think of the best examples. Um, we can all think of examples where something like that happens. Well, what's actually happening? I know, right? Does it take away? I'm, if they weren't all getting, you know, it's the misery loves company. If they were all miserable, I'm still single too. So if they're happy, it didn't take away. It doesn't diminish me in any way. And actually, if what happens if we fall into that feeling, oh, what about me? Well, that's, a, that's giving us information. You're not doing anything wrong then. You don't need to judge yourself. So, oh, this is a place for me to look at myself, too. What's going on with me? Oh, I'm worried about my own well-being. You know, that's fine. Then we want to spend some time with compassion for ourselves and doing wisdom practices. And, you know, there's you know, the whole rich world to work within there. So, right? But it's different if, if, like, oh, my friend's getting married and they're happy. And it can just be that. And we don't have to be all... Self-referential, it's not all about me, it can be about their happiness. Some of these can be more advanced practices too, so we, we just, you know, you just dip your little toe in to start, you don't jump in up to your neck to start. And in the fourth of, of these Brahma Viharas, these divide abodes, is upeka, we usually say upeka in the West, but it's upeka, an E in Pali is an A sound, meta, upeka but we'll all say upeka. <laughs> um, equanimity. Equanimity is the culmination of these meditative states I called jhana before, the concentration of jhana. You can see it as a culmination of the mindfulness and insight practice. It's the, pla- it's the culmination of these Brahmaviharas too, equanimity. What we mean by equanimity is not indifference. So the opposite of e- equanimity is you're just totally caught up and reactive and just lost in everything. You don't have any balance or presence. A near enemy of equanimity can be numbness or being disassociated or disconnected. What equanimity doesn't mean that your experience is just smoothed out and you don't feel pleasure or pleasant or unpleasant. Equanimity is the place in which you have the, the full unfolding of whatever your experience is of being a human being. And under that, or there with that, is a place that rests at peace. That's an equanimity. It's being fully present, fully experiencing. Actually, we experience things even more than before. The pleasant and the unpleasant gets more more rich, more deep, because we're not in reaction. We're not trying to make some plan or stance or get it away or hold on to it. We're just really present and we've cultivated our concentration and our mindfulness so we're really able to bring that Hubble telescope or electron microscope of the mind right to meet so what, what's going to happen is both the pleasant and the unpleasant I, I, I should warn you about this, they get stronger <laughs> but the equanimity comes so we're actually waking up to the experience of being alive and being human more and yet we're still present and not Jerked around by it, and I'll just give you a perfect example of the equanimity. Uh, something happened to me, and I'm not making claims that I, I never get caught in anything. You know, I'm a human being, but just this last weekend, i uh, I had a cold. I've been over it um, a few days ago, but I felt this weekend. I felt pretty lousy. You know, the feeling we say feeling lousy with the cold. I was really feeling into my body. I'm sitting on laying on my on my couch at home my brain was fuzzy, I couldn't do much of anything. And I, was, I couldn't really get a handle, what is this experience in the body? It's kind of vague and nebulous but that we know what it means, you just feel rotten or lousy with the cold. So I had that feeling and also I had slept in a bad way on my neck and I've pulled something in my neck that I still haven't quite completely recovered from and so my neck and down to my shoulder I had this, it was quite painful and I couldn't find any relief. I still have a slight ache, but it's a lot better. So I'm sitting on the couch both having you know, a, a medium level but, you know, lousy cold and my neck and shoulder aching and pain. and I just couldn't find any ease in the body at all, no matter what I did. And I noticed that I was perfectly at peace. <laughs> Mine was just... So I felt it. And I was actually consciously checking in and what's going on. I felt it. And I... I wasn't making a suffering about it. It's unpleasant. These things come. They go. It's just what was happening in the moment. I've had a lot of colds. I'm pretty sure that's not the last cold I'm going to have. You know, I'll have another one again. Probably something else will happen. I'll sleep on my... You know, by the time you hit my age, practically every morning I wake up, something just hurts for... (laughs) You know, it, it, it just, it seems like I get older, it's, um, I, I could give you my whole list, right? This is part of why we're, we're training the mind to, is, it, to, to free ourselves from clinging. You know, if I'm identified and cling, to, clinging to having my body be young, what's going to happen? I'm going to suffer. Mm-hmm. With the equanimity Again, not feeling like I have to disconnect. And part of the training, this was going back to the Four Noble Truths, is being able to really turn right into our suffering. This was part of what we do with the mindfulness practice. When we strengthen the the ability to be present and we strengthen our mindfulness, and if what's happening in the moment is a suffering, rather than react, we want to be able... We might choose to turn away from our suffering sometime if that's what's needed. Sometimes we need a break, right? You've had enough suffering, you know, you've been depressed, so now I just need the chocolate ice cream and the movie. (laughs) So, you know, we'll all have times like that. You need a break, okay. And during those times, we have to know the wisdom when we need that. That's because it's not out of aversion to the suffering. It's because we know our resources are depleted and we need... To, to rest, we need to find a relief. During those times, we better be able to get relief or bring the intensity of the situation down because if we can't, we're going to suffer. And we need to know when do I need to shift the situation and get relief? Or when, or, because what it really comes down to, there's whatever's happening in the present moment and our ability, how we're relating to it and if what's happening is too much for where we're at we either need to bring our resources up or bring the intensity of the situation down so we need tools to do it and we need to know when to do it and then we do the best we can and you get what you get and we work with it the best we can we all need a lot of compassion for ourselves knowing that are you wouldn't be sitting in this room If you weren't interested deeply in how can I actualize these Dharma teachings and practices and principles in my own life not just as a good idea you know we don't just want to sit around and watch other people getting enlightened we want to experience it for ourselves we want that freedom and liberation too so it's a beautiful intention that everyone has right so we all are going to bring the best we can into the moment and With time, we strengthen our skills and our abilities. And we're also going to have times when we fall flat on our face and we screw it up and we still suffer. And when that happens, we need the compassion for ourselves to know that we're human beings and we're doing the best we can. And so what I want to do now is... I'm going to just say one last piece to end, and then we'll have some time looking back over this five weeks. If there's any questions or discussion, oftentimes dharma practice—that includes meditation practice—and just all, I use the word dharma practice to comprise everything we're talking about. It's not just formal meditation, which is a big deal and important, but it's also how we live our lives moment to moment, just walking around and, and interacting with others and, you know, do we, what, the quality we bring to that, which actually I think is the, the most important of all. That's where it gets really, I think there's so much, it's the really interesting, leading edge for many of us, not just in formal meditation. It's often taught that the foundation The starting point for Dharma practice or meditation practice is what's called SILA, S-I-L-A. It was the third, fourth, and fifth elements of the Eightfold Path, which were um, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Or We'll talk about the five precepts. It's living and acting in a way, it's morality, if you will living and acting skillfully in a way that creates less suffering for ourselves and others and more well-being or happiness or peace for ourselves and others. So non-harming, being honest and wise and careful with our speech, not misusing our sexuality, not stealing, not abusing drugs and alcohol, you know, all of these uh, things of how we live, that's considered traditionally to be foundational And then when we, because you know, if you're living in a way that's harmful, your mind's not going to settle down. Not only are you causing suffering, but it's not like you're going to cause suffering. But then you can go off and have peaceful meditations. Doesn't work that way. Many, not many, but a number of times on retreats, people have come into interviews, and they did something before, within a day or two before coming on retreat and it's, they just, you know, and they have all this regret and it's spinning around and, and they can't let it go. And because they don't have external distractions, it's magnified and they're really suffering. And oftentimes I'll say, you know, go call the person up and tell them you're sorry or take care of it or everything. And then, and then they'll come back and okay. Yeah. And that made it better. And then they're able to, they, you know, they, they deal with it and then they're able to settle down. It's a perfect example of why the morality piece if, or the precepts is so important. I think there's a piece more foundational, and this is just my own. It's not coming out of the polytext. It's just me. I think the starting place is self-compassion, for just the reasons I just described. Out from that place, and we do the best you can. We can. You don't have to be good at it, but we just are o- at least open to the possibility knowing that we're trying our best. I know some people judge themselves. I'm not trying my best. I'm terrible. I'm you're the least qualified to judge because you're, you're not objective. You're caught in it. You can't see yourself objectively. How well or poorly or good or bad you're doing it is, is not a, a valid... That's just, that's just how your mind's conditioned, the habits of your mind. That's what we're working on. What speaks more deeply true about you is your, is your intention or your motivation, where you want to aim. That's really what's driving it. And then how it shows up, well that's, who knows how our minds got habituated how they are. That's what we're working on. So no need to beat yourself up or judge yourself. It is literally true for everyone here, you're doing the best you can knowing that we need to at least be open to the idea that maybe someday we could be compassionate for ourselves or actually even try to take that on the best we can. Sometimes we need help or we need to practice so that when we take on the morality piece, the precepts, it's not coming out of aversion towards ourselves or I'm no good or I've got to get it right. We can have a a relaxed, we want to make effort but a spacious. Kind attitude to ourselves, even when we take on the precepts. So I think the self compassion is, is just extremely important. Um, I'm going to stop. And um, we'll have some time. I think they would like for you, if anybody, if you have a comment, it's fine. If you have any questions, anything Dharma-related. Anyone? Yes, Mike. I think the mic's coming over to you. And it seems to me that uh, every time I'm trying to break a habit, I've got to use a lot more effort. Um, <clears throat> it, yeah. Anyway. Well, there's two things there in what you're saying. So, one is just talking about the itch itself. That's exam- an example, and we're all different, but if I think most, for most people, there's something about the quality of the experience of an itch that's particularly challenging. You're right. So, you have a choice of how to work with it here. So, first, it's probably good instead of just habitually, unconsciously scratching, just pause, be aware, and then you may want to hang out with it and notice how it is and be mindful, and if you wanted to do that, and all the forces and impulses that come up, that's fine. And at some point, maybe you've had enough, and okay, you raise your hand up, you scratch, it's no big deal, and you carry on. Or you may just not want to do that, and you know, I don't make a big deal about it, I may say, well, you just scratch it and move on. So I, I don't want to make a big deal about that. So I think it's just you just you, choice, but you know it's it's worth at least spending some time investigating around that, right? A little bit of time. But you also said something about changing a habit. That's a little different because um, an itch, you know, there's just a physical sensation happening. Um, I guess you could say it's a habit to want to scratch it. But I I tend not to use that terminology. When I'm thinking of a habit, it's it's just a pattern. It's it's the it's any kind of conditioned habitual pattern of the mind. It may be a person says something or acts in a certain way or I see this and I tend to always react or this is what triggers me or this is where I get caught. It's true that changing any habit, check in for yourself, can, is hard in the beginning. With work and with time, as the, the, the natural pattern starts to shift, it becomes more of a trait the trait itself changes. You could say the neural pathways are being reconfigured or I don't know how we would what's going on. And it becomes less and less hard and you're naturally not straining against it so much. When I was a kid, I used to bite my fingernails. I haven't for since I was a kid. I don't remember exactly when I stopped. But I actually remember trying to stop the habit. I really had like an impulse to bite my fingernails. And I remember in the beginning it was just hard and I would... No, I'm biting my fingernails again and I would sort of wake up in the middle of doing it and realize I'm doing it and with stop and over time it would get to the point where I would be aware of the impulse before I did it but it was still a strong impulse and I would do it and just it's still hard and with time maybe I wouldn't and somehow at some point the impulse just by working with and being willing to hang in with it it changed it shifted and um, it got less and less to the point where you know, my entire adult life, I, it just doesn't even occur to me right, anymore. So that's an example. So you're right, it is hard. But some patterns, depending on what we work on, may not be like the biting the fingernails example. They can just completely evaporate. They may get subtler and subtler. I'll give you an example that many of you have heard me use, I often use. Um, I have an aspiration, I've talked about this often, uh, to live so that my heart never closes off to any living beings and that's a real aspiration I have. I take it very seriously. And that's shifted tremendously for me in my life. And, of course, I have plenty of opportunities to see where more work needs to be done. So perhaps there'll come a time where literally no ill will or no grouchiness even or anything towards any being would ever arise in the mind. I don't know if that's attainable or not. So who knows? Who knows? it doesn't stop my aspiration i just know where i want to aim and when difficulties arise in the mind now you catch them you can just see them coming up and can learn you just let them go or if they, work with them or or if they're stronger right it doesn't mean we can never have be a human being and have any challenges in our minds i don't know anyone like that but we learn to see that they're just impersonal patterns that just arise and pass away like anything else. It's like my cold on the weekend it came it went. You know, ill will comes and goes. So we just want to work with it and it, and it gets uh it loses its grip where the heart stays open more deeply and profoundly more of the time within a wider range of challenging people and experiences. And we're more an, a, the fruit of, the, of strengthening the mindfulness and the concentration, the undistractedness, is that we're aware more and more of what's happening when the mind is open, we're just naturally aware. It's not even a practice anymore, it's just, it's just a, a, a knowing that's there. And when it's, the difficulties are arising, we can see our reactions to our... It's all clear. So anyway. So. Uh, yes.
0: So what you're saying about habits, um, it's kind of bringing up um, for me what um, I think my pattern, when I'm working with my habits. My pattern is I basically set up an image for myself, kind of my ideal, and then I have who I am now, and I sort of measure them, I sort of compare them, and I sort of see how I measure up. And some days when I do whatever it is that I want to do, you know, say go running or Mm -hmm. meditation, I sort of say, yay, yeah, yeah, I measured up, and there's a sort of judgment there, a positive judgment, but it's still a sort of judgment, yay, yeah, you know, you're you're good. And when I don't do it, then I sort of beat myself up. And um, they're really both, even though one is positive judgment and one is a negative judgment, they're still both judgments. They're still right. sort, of, um, sort of seeing my ego and sort of being me. And um, so so the thing I'm, I'm trying to find from this is uh, I'm trying to... Um, I'm trying to get in, find a new way, a new approach to that, and it sounds like what you're saying is based on basically self compassion right um.
1: well let me let me respond um, a couple of things. so let me just repeat because the mic wasn't on, and I don 't know if everyone could hear, but he's basically saying that you're basically what you 're saying is is that you, you you tend to have an evaluation or a judgment toward yourself by the way, this is not uncommon of Kind of how you view yourself and what your goal or your aim or end point or ideal is. It could be in the bigger picture. It could be just today I wanted to get this done and did I or didn't I? And if you did, there's kind of a a good evaluation. You measure it up or if you didn't. And so there's always some judging or evaluating going on. So one thing, so I think the compassion place for suffering is important, but I would also um, invite you to investigate, and you can do it a lot of different ways, um, but it may be just when you get quiet and you maybe you're meditating, maybe just check in. You may even use some words, ask the question if if words help, or it may be nonverbal. What's fueling this? What's underneath this judging, this always having to judge myself? Is it okay? And feel in. Maybe you, I don't know, maybe then f- really take some time and feel in What's going on in your belly? Maybe you'll notice there's some tightness or in your shoulders. And just try to get under. Don't go digging too hard. Be relaxed. But really take a look. Feel into it. Maybe some investigation of what's this about? And it may be something. I, I'm, I have no idea. It could be many things. But, for example, it may be some place of like around self-esteem, for example. That's one for my youth that I could relate to would have similar symptoms, for example. You're like Maybe there's a deep place. that just doesn't feel Settled and at peace and okay about yourself. Say for example, it could be many things. I'm not. I don't know. But just as an example, and then you would know, come to know. Oh, and well, what's and that, could, there's a whole world to open up there. Of of of, where is that? What is that? How's it felt? And start to untangle the, those knots. Some and whether that happens through formal Dharma practice, you know, many of us like me end up in therapy, and there's lots of ways, uh, a skillful means to work, and I don't know, you know, what will be the way to work with it, but the investigation piece of what's fueling that and bring the compassion place for the place that knows you'd like to step out of that paradigm, but the pattern's still there. And you've got to realize for, and we'll end with this, uh, because we're up against the clock, for any pattern like that, we have to realize that whatever the habit or pattern is, it only knows how to do one thing, like the one you just mentioned. All it knows how to do is a little computer loop that runs. Right? If you go on your computer and you click on an ex- the icon for the Excel spreadsheet, you'll never get Microsoft Word. It only knows how to do one thing. So whatever for each of us all of us have our versions and you just happened to share one of yours we could each give our top ten whatever how they got in us okay I don't know they're in there and they're a little habit and the habit only knows how to run its loop so when the when the trigger comes or the what we say is the causes and conditions come together that click on that icon in the brain then it runs off its loop so if you have a this isn't what you were saying exactly, but say you had like a real self-critical mind and we fight against it. Well, it needs some compassion. The poor thing only knows how to do one thing. Be critical. And if it's not, it'll either be someone else or it'll, it'll go right on to you. It's, it doesn't care where it lands. It's just it's just critical, for example. So these, these are impersonal. I mean, they're personal because it is us in a sense, but they're just impersonal in a sense. They're just running their natural course and what part of what we're doing is loosening I like to say loosening the tangle or the knot and there's um, there's a repatterning, and a, ultimately we, there's this idea of freeing ourselves from our conditioning which we didn't get into in this five weeks what we really mean by that but what we're on the, the on a real accessible level we're shifting the the conditioned patterns of our minds so that the unwholesome, and what, what I mean by that is the, the patterns that get us into trouble, cause suffering, are they lose their power, and we strengthen the wholesome, the patterns that, that, that serve us well. And it's just through working in all these ways, and over time they do shift. So anyway, I hope that's useful for now. It's hard to be more specific. Okay. Thank you. So thank you very much. So let me just say it's exactly 9 o'clock now. Um, I'm going to do an extremely short ending, like just a couple of minutes. If you need to go ahead and go, please, please do so and don't feel like you, you have to stay. It's perfectly fine to go. But those of you who can stay at, uh, uh, late for two or three minutes, first I just want to thank you for it's been I've really appreciated being with you and hanging out and really uh, exploring the Dharma together. So I mean, it's real supportive for my own practice to be able to be with a group of sincere Dharma folk such as you. So it's, it was great for me. So I would like to end just simply by inviting you to the best you can connect in And this may not be clear in your mind. It may be vague, and that's okay. Is there a sense of your own intention or motivation or aspiration for yourself, your life, and reflect on... So let me just give you a reflection here, and I'll do it quickly what is it that's most important to you in your life? I'm talking about, don't hold back like in the deepest or highest sense. What do you really want your life to be about in the deepest or highest sense? I'm hoping that whatever decisions you come to, and you may want to take more time later to do these reflections. I hope you'll let Dharma teachings inform the choices you make. So it's getting in touch with our intention and knowing that we're human beings so it's not that you have we're going to live perfectly out of our deepest intention all the time. And for many of us, most of us, there's going to be places where there's a gap when we look at how we're actually living versus our highest intention of how we want to live. A perfect example is the, what I said about having an aspiration. That no living being is ever shut out of my heart. That, that's one of my highest aspirations or intentions. And then you can look and see if there's a gap. And when we see gaps, it's, it, it's useful to p- spend some time reflecting on well, what, what causes a gap. Is it some of these habits and patterns that we're talking about that need work? Or it could be many, many different things. But for tonight, I want to focus on what are things in your life as you go forward that might be supportive to support you to live more deeply, more authentically from what you want your life to be about in the deepest and highest sense. It doesn't mean that we don't have jobs. Maybe that is what it is in the deepest, highest sense. That's fine. But it doesn't mean we don't have to, have to take care of the mundane. You know, you don't have to pay your bills and get your car fixed and just take care of, you know, what we call the mundane that you may not think is the deepest and highest, but that's, we don't need to have to make a separation. But we want to stay in touch with our highest aspirations. What will support you? Is it coming to places like this? or hanging out with like-minded people, finding supportive, that's this word, Sangha, community, or study, or reflection, or practice. What, what, What will support you? And then try and just maybe spend some time every day. When you maybe get up in the morning or whenever you want, just take, it can be 30 seconds or a minute or two, just reflecting on, what's the highest intention for my life? And if you're not sure what your highest intention is, I would encourage you to take some period of time, it could be over days or weeks or months or I don't know how long, reflecting and feeling, getting in touch with, what is my highest intention reflection for my life? What is it really all about? It's not for me to have, you know, say what it should be for you, but that's never stopped me, so I'll, I'll add my... <laughs> my wish, my hope is that given the fact that we're here in a Dharma community that at least part of that is living as deeply and authentically as you can or or, or from a place of love and compassion and wisdom clarity wakefulness insight non-reactivity equanimity peace clarity kindness compassion i already said that one but it's worth saying twice that those are i'm hoping that those are some qualities you would consider you know and there may be other things too that are more mundane so you have to reflect on that yourself and finally perhaps some appreciation for yourself this is so important of course it's important to reflect on the difficulties that come up our suffering and where we get caught in old habits and we need to do all that work but so important to reflect on our own wholesome qualities, our own goodness our own sincere intentions we need to make those conscious, be aware of the wholesome in us so we can strengthen them we can call on those Qualities, So just taking a moment now to reflect on your own good intention that you are someone who wants to live in a way that's as loving and compassionate and wise and awake and clear and, and I like the word enlightened as you can be. It's a beautiful uh, intention. And then finally, um, let us offer up the merit Um, By that, I mean all the the good energy, the good qualities we've cultivated, the goodness. Traditionally, we'll say the merit, traditional language, recognizing that, you know, none of us are practicing for our own benefit alone because you just can't do it, right? If you free your own heart and mind, it benefits you, but everybody you come in contact with, uh, it benefits too. So we're always practicing for everyone else too, but we make it more conscious and we offer up. May the fruits of our practice be for the benefit and the liberation of all beings. May all beings everywhere be happy, be at peace, be well, be safe, healthy. May all beings everywhere come to an end of suffering. So thank you all, and perhaps uh, I'll see some of you around again.